0: These are The Oldest Stories, online at oldeststories.net. When I first began this podcast, I had a very different notion in my mind of where it was going to go. I thought that perhaps after a bit of Mesopotamian storytelling, I would move over to Egyptian stories, then to Hindu and Chinese stories, and generally tell every narrative written prior to the year 1000 BCE. If you've been listening up to this point, you may have noticed that this is not actually what's happened here. I discovered that these other cultures already have very interesting podcasts, and also discovered that aside from the ancient Near East, history doesn't really start anywhere else in the world much prior to my arbitrary cutoff date. That, plus discovering just how incredibly fascinating I think you'll agree that Mesopotamian history is, this turned the oldest stories into the history and myth podcast that you've been listening to today this means however that some of the early episodes were a bit unfocused and there's a major massive historical gap right at the beginning with the history section beginning at lagash circa 2400 bce because of all this I'm going back and re-recording the first two episodes, and next week, instead of a regular episode, I'll be adding a new episode three, an overview of Mesopotamian history up to 2400 BCE. So next week, you may need to scroll all the way down to the far end of your podcast's player feed list to listen to it. Additionally... Some of the other episodes will be moving around. Episode numbers are being added to each episode title, and a little website overhaul will be attempted, though who knows just how successful that will be. All this is a very roundabout way of saying that today we're going to be introducing two new cultures to the show, one of whom has been sitting right next to us the entire time – going almost completely unremarked upon because at first I was saving it for later episodes, and then because I realized I would never be able to outdo Dominic Perry's amazing history of Egypt. Seriously, if you are interested in the civilization of the Nile Valley and the Great Pyramid Builders, you should be listening to his show. But because Egypt in the Late Bronze Age is going to be one of our big power players... It's time that I summarize for you the entirety of Egyptian history up to the 18th dynasty in about eh, 20 minutes or so. As far back as the pre-literate period, well over 5,000 years ago, the Nile Valley peoples of pre-Egypt exchanged a certain amount of trade and culture with the people of Mesopotamia. As we will be covering in the upcoming episode 3, or may already be out depending on when you listen to this, the late 3000s BCE were a time which appeared to be heavily dominated by the city of Uruk, and the vast trade and colonial empire that Uruk has established reached all the way to the Nile Valley, as is attested by numerous archaeological finds. Pottery was physically transported from Mesopotamia to Egypt— but also once it arrived, we can see that the styles were, at least in some cases, emulated by the local royalty. Additionally, the cylinder seals, so popular in the early period of Mesopotamia, are emulated among the pre-dynastic noble houses. We can be certain that a lot of ideas, as well as high-value physical goods, moved since the occasional finds of lapis lazuli among the Nile could only have come from Mesopotamian traders. And it's possible that some of the gold in early dynastic Mesopotamia palaces could have been from Egypt, though with gold it's a little harder to say for certain. Were perishable goods like food, textiles, wood, slaves, and animals moved across the Fertile Crescent or through a sea route through from the Persian Gulf to the Red Sea? In the pre-literate period, that's really hard to say. In older times, there was a theory that certain Mesopotamian bloodlines were responsible for founding the first Egyptian dynasty, but those are now viewed as unlikely and possibly founded in some racist assumptions that aren't really valid for either the ancient Sumerians or the ancient Egyptians. But the big question, at the very dawn of history, is whether the Egyptians invented writing independently or if they borrowed it from the Sumerians. There are people on all sides of the issue, including the side that says neither culture invented writing, and instead all humans inherited it from the ancient aliens. But in all seriousness, we can say two things pretty much for sure. The Sumerians were the first to invent writing, though the Egyptians followed up pretty soon after. But the Egyptian writing system was different enough that it wasn't a straight copying or a direct borrowing from Sumer. Because we can see that both writing systems followed a similar pattern to the invention of Chinese and Central American writing, where pictures of things morph into ever more abstract pictograms, it seems likely that the two inventings were at least somewhat independent. Though there does seem to be a large number of modern scholars of the opinion that, since Egyptian writing proceeded so soon after the Sumerian, the Egyptians must surely have heard about this new technology their new trading partners had developed, and with the idea in mind they set out actively to create writing. As much as I favor anything that puts Mesopotamia ahead of Egypt in historical precedence, This is too big an unresolved question to come down on one side or another, at least not in a single podcast episode. Shortly after the appearance of writing, the Egyptians give history something pretty remarkable. A single, well-defined beginning point, out of which they appear to spring almost fully formed. This is the Narmer palette, a carved picture representation with very early hieroglyphs that appear to depict the first king of Egypt, Narmer, unifying Upper and Lower Egypt by force of arms. With the emergence of the first dynasty under Narmer, sometimes called Menes, we see the core of what we popularly know as Egypt already in place, a mostly agricultural system reliant on the annual Nile flood, a highly skilled class of artisans and craftsmen making religious art for the nobles, and a fixation on the afterlife. Egyptian history is assembled after this point into dynasties, each being given a number. Narmer's is the first dynasty, beginning right around 3000 BCE, and there is a second dynasty after that, though these two are poorly attested. The Third Dynasty is where the action really gets started. Under King Djoser around 2700 BCE, it was Djoser and his equally famous architect Imhotep who built the first of the pyramids, specifically the Step Pyramid of Djoser, though the pyramid form would evolve and develop over the Old Kingdom period. It would be the Fourth Dynasty, the famous Sneferu and Khufu, among others, who would be the Great Pyramid Builders, with the Great Pyramids of Giza finished sometime around 2500 BCE. With the Fifth and Sixth Dynasties, the Great Monuments would begin to shift away from pyramids, and more towards funerary temples dedicated to the sun god Ra. It's often said that the great expense of the pyramids is what ended the pyramid age, but it seems that the old kingdom kings were fully capable of spending massive amounts of money on sun temples and funerary monuments, demonstrating that there was an actual religious and cultural shift away from worshipping the kings primarily, and instead towards worshipping the gods. Obviously, I'm glossing over a lot in this 500-year period, but the truth is that not much happened in the Old Kingdom that would have resounding effects on the outside world. Old Kingdom, I should mention, is the name given to the stable period of the 3rd to 6th dynasties. Conflict, both internal and external, was remarkably rare, and the Nile Valley in general enjoyed a long stretch of general prosperity trade still occurred, but the Egyptians were no longer receiving strong outside influences like during the pre-First Dynasty period. Instead, the early years of a very long and slow period of Egyptian influence on the Levant would begin. The Egyptian kingdom had almost no dealings outside the Nile Valley, at least not in an official capacity, and foreigners were pretty much only encountered when they raided or traded with the fringes of the nation. If you want to learn more about the history of Egypt, let me recommend again that History of Egypt podcast by Dominic Perry. It's probably my favorite currently active podcast. But for our purposes, we can pretty much note that the Old Kingdom was a prosperous time when the pyramids were built and move on from there. All this came to an end with the final king of the 6th dynasty, ruling around the same time as Naram-Sin of the Akkadian Empire. Pepi II, Neferkare, may well have ruled for a mind-boggling 94 years, outliving all of his children and many of his grandchildren, leaving the kingdom with a succession crisis at about the same time as the great climatological shift of the 2200s that contributed to the downfall of the Akkadian Empire over in Mesopotamia. At about the same time as Sumer and Akkad are overrun by Gutians and plunged into a dark age, Egypt, too, enters its first intermediate period, a poorly documented period of disunity among the Nile Valley. It wasn't just climate that split Upper and Lower Egypt at this point. The local nobles had been gaining power thanks to the policies of the Sixth dynasty kings. But the coincidence of two neighboring civilizations suffering downswings at about the same time is hard for some scholars to ignore. At around the time of the Sumerian Renaissance, with King Shulgi leading the Third Dynasty of Ur to its cultural heights, a fellow named Mantu Hotep II managed to unify the Nile Valley once again, beginning the Middle Kingdom period, even though his 11th dynasty would quickly give way to the 12th. The 12th dynasty would begin when the vizier of the final 11th dynasty king sent said vizier on a great expedition to Punt, the first of a number of great expeditions that would characterize the Middle Kingdom. The details on this transition are a bit unclear, but the 12th dynasty would become remarkably successful in maintaining a unified Egypt, while Mesopotamia was in the chaotic warfare of the isin Larsa period. Both the Mesopotamians and Egyptians have had boats, and indeed oceanic trade, even in the prehistoric period, but here's when Egypt really begins to extend a commercial and cultural presence into the Levant in particular, and the wider Near East as a whole. An Egyptian presence was more fully established on the distant Sinai Peninsula, mostly to exploit the rich mining opportunities available there, and the southern border with Nubia was pushed further southwards through force of arms. The height of the 12th dynasty was really something fairly spectacular in world history, a time of general peace and prosperity in which war was essentially optional for the Egyptian state, something that could be engaged in, or not if they felt like it, the Nile Valley itself was secure, and things were good for Egypt. Until around 1800 BCE, when a period of weakness struck, and the northern portion of Egypt, where the Nile becomes the great fertile delta pouring into the Mediterranean, was lost to a group of foreigners called the Hyksos. The 12th dynasty would fall and be replaced by the 13th dynasty, the first dynasty who would be sharing the Nile Valley with non-Egyptian states. Who were these Hyksos, and where did they come from? The modern consensus gets us no farther than to say that they were some sort of western Semitic people from the Levantine coast, possibly southern cousins of the same Amorites that had been reshaping Mesopotamia for the preceding two centuries. They did not arrive in a single great invasion, but instead slowly moved in, sometimes fighting, sometimes just traveling in semi nomadic fashion, and sometimes integrating into the Nile Delta fully peacefully. It's speculated by some that many foreigners may have been able to use the weakness of the declining 12th and weak 13th dynasties to secure powerful government posts for themselves, and then bring in tribes of relatives to serve as power blocks. One of the most compelling narratives for this is the tale of Joseph from the account in biblical Genesis. But, of course, the Genesis account requires no small amount of untangling itself. And while we'll likely be looking at it to some degree when we get to the Iron Age, for now we can simply say that Joseph's entry into Egypt probably fits the general conception of what may have been a semi-peaceful Hixus entry into Egypt— And whether it's a fully accurate historical memory or a later archetype remembering this period in general is left for now as an exercise to the listener. That isn't to say the Hyksos was a fully peaceful transition of power either. Eventually, as the Middle Kingdom slid into the Second Intermediate Period, it would be the Hyksos who would bring the great weapons of the Late Bronze Age into the Nile Valley, the horse the late-period chariot, the sickle sword, and the compound bow. Indeed, foreign rule would eventually extend over nearly all of Egypt until the final kings of the 17th dynasty. Sekenin-Re and Ka-Mosa managed to reunify Egypt, beginning the glorious period known as the New Kingdom right around 1550 BCE. This new kingdom, and especially the 18th dynasty that's just getting off the ground as Hammurabi's dynasty in Babylon is being crushed into the dirt, is the source of many of the greatest names and most famous tales of Egyptian history. A bit happens to start off the new kingdom, but for our purposes, the thing that really gets the ball rolling is a fellow by the name of Thutmose I. Presiding over a strong, prosperous Egypt he felt that the best way to assert his authority was to beat up on his many weaker neighbors. Though absolute dating is difficult in this period, he seems to have launched a northward expedition through the Levant and into Syria sometime around 1500, most notably becoming the first official Egyptian expedition to set eyes on the Euphrates River. They promptly named it the Backwards Flowing River, not reeling that it was their Nile with its distinctive south-to-north flow that was the exception among major waterways. But most significant in this expedition was what it saw when the king looked across that river. In 1500, about a hundred years after the sack of Babylon and well into the nadir of the Hittite period of palace bloodshed, these Egyptian adventurers appear to have concluded that there were no advanced civilizations anywhere outside the Nile. They plundered some tiny, undefended towns and went home. Upon arriving home, Tutmos claimed a great victory against a people called the Nahrim, But in fact, it seems that the Egyptians mostly just attacked some nominal vassals of this mysterious kingdom and were well out of the territory before any larger response could be mustered. The next generation would be dominated by the massive historical figure of Queen Hatshepsut, a lady who would define her entire era and defy easy summarization. But we really don't have to summarize her here, since Egypt will almost completely ignore the Near East for the whole period. But once this inward-focused period has passed, Queen Hatshepsut would finally leave the throne to her son, a man who seems to have been desperate to get out of his mother's shadow by doing the one thing she never could, lead an army. King Tutmos III, often considered one of the great military geniuses of history, would assemble his first great campaign only two months after his overbearing mother passed away. He would make his mark in the First Battle of Megiddo, the spot that would come to be known biblically as Armageddon many centuries later. With this victory... Tutmos would, in a single great sweep, establish himself as overlord over the region of Canaan, with cities well into Syria opting to send tribute. A number of years later, after a few smaller campaigns to reinforce his dominance over the Levant, he would move on the city of Kadesh, another spot that we'll be hearing about more in the future. This would put him in control over South Syria, right around the year. 1450 BCE, just in time for his Euphrates campaign. Taking the unusual step of loading his army into great ships, Tutmos sailed his army northwards to Byblos, a long-time Egyptian vassal and trade partner on the modern-day Lebanese coast. It seems that towns around there had been wavering in their support, many having failed to give tribute since the days of his grandfather's first great expedition to the Euphrates. And so around the year 1450, seeking an answer to who had pulled Syria out of the Egyptian sphere of influence, Thutmose III again encountered the people known to the Egyptians as Nahrim, meaning something like river people, though here the more common name is also used. As Thutmose ...takes his Egyptian army further afield than they've ever gone before, they encounter the other great power of the Late Bronze Age Near East. These are the Mitanni, and it's high time we introduce them properly on the show. In their own way, the Mitanni are the opposite of the Egyptians. Situated at the opposite end of the Near East, the Mitanni are very recent arrivals part of the same general movement of Indo-Europeans that brought the horse and the Kassites to the region. Where Egypt has such a long and distinguished pedigree that my previous summary was no more than a bare-bones outline, there's almost nothing we can say for sure about who the Mitanni are or where they come from. They show a handful of Indo-Aryan words and gods and the very few pieces of text that survive from them, Fragments that have fueled more than a handful of incredibly tenuous and often highly racist claims of Aryan supermen dominating the brown folk with their greater evolution. But despite being an almost complete blank in our histories, the Mitanni appeared and created a somewhat loose empire at the headwaters of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Some think that they arrived as early as the 1700s, slowly building up on the fringes of civilization, while others think they arrive only a generation or two before Thutmose I's famous expedition. Part of the reason for this confusion is, and I can't emphasize this enough, we have almost nothing at all from the Mitanni themselves. They appear to have had a capital city and two major cities in their heartland, but Not a one of these has been identified by modern archaeologists, forcing scholars to build their history up from outside voices. The other part of the problem is the nature of the Mitanni Empire itself. Very little of it had anything to do with the tribe of the Mitanni. Rather, the Mitanni were a tiny overclass of rulers, ruling over a vast swathe of Hurrian tribes and villages, Who had been in more or less the same spot for generations. We've seen these Hurrians before, at least since Sargon of Akkad sent his first armies up the Tigris, and possibly even earlier under the name of Subartu. These people are fascinating, having their own culture and language and way of life while gleefully adopting concepts and techniques from any and all of their neighbors. They have, for centuries before the arrival of the Mitanni, existed at all points among the slider of settled civilizations, from full mountain nomadism to settled cities no less impressive than those of their southern neighbors. And this is why it's hard to tell when the Mitanni arrived. Some claim that when, in the previous episodes on the Hittites, I have mentioned Hurrian incursions into Hittite territory even as far back as the time when Hattushili I nearly lost his entire kingdom to a Hurrian invasion, all those in this view are really the expansionist Mitanni Empire. Now, this isn't completely crazy, since even after we know that the Mitanni Empire is fully established, it would be known by different names among every other nation it came into contact with, and the Hittites were quite content to stick with calling them the Hurrians. The Egyptians, as we've already seen, alternated between calling them the Nahrim or Mitanni, and the Babylonians will come to call them Hanigalbat, or some variation of that. However, my own personal preference is to follow the line of scholars who suggest that the Mitanni arrived fairly late to the scene. It's possible that the chaos surrounding the fall of Babylon is related directly to their arrival or indirectly as they invade farther north and knock over a chain of migrating dominoes that ends up in Babylon. Whatever the case, they arrive in the northwest and use their great superweapons, the horse, compound bow, and new style chariot, in order to dominate the fractured Hurrian communities they encounter. Had the Hurrians been unified, they could have stood up to them, but divided they were easy pickings for the warrior elite of the Mitanni tribe. These warrior elites, called the Marianu, were peerless fighters in the region, the best men atop the best chariots, and are really the biggest single thing that differentiates the Mitanni from the native substrate that they will be conquering. But it isn't just force that allows the Mitanni to build a great kingdom. When they do conquer a village or defeat a tribe in battle, they take over with a remarkably light touch, allowing a tremendous degree of local autonomy. Indeed, in many places, aside from a modest annual tribute payment, it's possible that life went on completely unchanged. This tribute payment, in turn, was probably more than offset by the ending of the intertribal raids that had been a fact of life for as long as the Hurrians had been around. A bit of taxes for a bit of security under the domination of the greatest warriors of the late Bronze Age probably didn't seem like that bad of a trade for many. And so, by the time 1450 rolls around, the Mitanni warriors have united the formerly disparate Hurrian lands into essentially a Hurrian kingdom with foreign rulers and great warriors. In the episodes that follow, I'm going to do what I can to elaborate on the Mitanni and the Hurrians... But how this is going to work is that when I'm talking about matters of battles and kings, I'm going to be talking about the Mitanni, since that's who did the most significant parts of the fighting. But when talking about cultural matters, I'll be talking about Hurrians. It can be said more or less that by the time we get any solid records at all of the Mitanni, they seem to have no distinctive culture aside from a few scattered words and vestigial gods. They speak Hurrian and have been fully incorporated into the great syncretizing machine that is the Hurrian culture. And so, in future episodes, I'm going to talk at length about Mitanni chariots, and on the other hand, telling the stories of the Hurrian gods. But, if we're going to speak about the Hurrians and their culture at all, we have, in this short introduction, missed the very most important fact about them. Hurrians were everywhere. From modern-day Syria to modern-day Iran, running perhaps as far north as the Black and Caspian Seas, they were there before the Mitanni, they would stick around after the Mitanni, and they would, throughout this period, live within the Mitanni Empire, within their own independent tribes and villages, and within every neighboring community as far south of the Nile Valley. You see while the Mesopotamians and Egyptians depended solely on the rivers for their agriculture, and from whatever irrigation they could dig to effectively expand the river, the Hurrians lived farther north, where they could depend on rain-fed agriculture. This means that you get ethnically Hurrian settlements anywhere that annual rainfall is over about 200 millimeters, regardless of political boundaries. They were in Assyria, they were in Aleppo, they were in Anatolia, and the craftsmen, laborers, and herdsmen were quite happy to travel as itinerant workers anywhere their feet would take them. There is a Hurrian substrate in every major city of Syria, the Levant, and North Mesopotamia, and these were not wholly insular communities either. While Hurrians did maintain their own language, they happily and freely intermix their own gods and legends with those of their neighbors, serving as one of the key vectors for cultural transmission across the Near East. This actually ends up affecting not the Mitanni kingdom, but the kingdom of the Hittites as the expansion of the Mitanni political power sees more and more of these culture-transmitting Hurrians entering into Anatolia, usually peacefully. As we will be seeing, though the process was already well underway by 1450, the Hittites, formerly so strongly influenced by the native Hattians and other Anatolian traditions, will come to adopt a remarkable amount of Hurrian culture. Indeed, When we get to the gods and myths of the Hurrians and Mitanni, we'll see that nearly all of our surviving copies have been recovered from the ruins of Hattusha, the Hittite capital, not from places that were ever under Mitanni domination. Now, I think this has been a good little contrast here, the straightforward narrative and pedigree of Egypt against the absolutely confusing mess that is the Mitanni. But by now you should have enough of a sense of both of these powers that we can move on and look at their first clash near the euphrates river as the military genius tutmos the takes on a mitanni king whose name we don't even know for sure as we look at this particular campaign it will also be time to take a look at the military revolution that is underpinning these striking geopolitical changes going on at the same time and so In a future episode, look forward to hearing all about Late Bronze Age chariotry and how it dominated the ancient battlefield. Next week, however, as mentioned at the start of the show, there will be no standard episode. Instead, I'm re-recording the first two episodes as part of a celebration of the show's 50,000th download. That's right, Oldest Stories has now been listened to over 50,000 times, which absolutely blows me away and is vastly more than I had ever expected when I started this. And I know that it's all thanks to you, my dedicated listeners, who have helped share my show mostly through word of mouth, but also through leaving reviews on your podcast apps and telling people about it on Facebook and other social media. This is honestly a labor of love for me, and I'd probably still be doing it, even if it was only my father listening. But seeing how many people have enjoyed the journey of learning about Mesopotamia along with me, it's its really a great feeling. And so, like I said, I'm re-recording the first two episodes to hopefully not scare quite so many people off by the questionable early quality. Also, over the next few weeks, I'm going to overhaul the website and make some technical improvements that you may or may not notice. But, if you've already listened to the first two episodes telling the story of Kings Enmerkar and Banda, there's not really that much reason to listen again. They're not going to change that much. Rather... I would direct your attention to a brand new episode that will hopefully slot in next Wednesday right between Lugalbanda and the beginning of the Gilgamesh epic. This new episode will fill in a number of gaps that I sort of skipped over at the start because this show was a disorganized mess. And so, join us next week to hear how it all got started as a collection of people gradually decided to settle down and give this whole... Mesopotamian civilization thing a try. Thank you for listening.